welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and today is episode 102 and it's a compilation of the best people and experts in the field of examining the impact of sugar and processed food and other products on our brain health and our health in general. So I hope you enjoy this compilation. I certainly learnt a lot and I hope you do too. Thank you for listening. Healthy-ish, your podcast from Body and Soul. I am the host, Felicity Harley. So one of the most downloaded episodes last year was about how sugar messes with your microbiome and oh boy, does it ever. So we wanted to revisit the subject well, of sugar, but this time through the eyes of a neuroscientist. Get her take on why it's so addictive and how we can cut back. Professor Selena Bartlett is a neuroscientist, as I said, and also a professor in clinical sciences at the Queensland University of Technology. She's also an author, a podcaster, and Okay, she happens to be a columnist for our print edition. And she's going to talk to us about, well, your brain on sugar. Selena, thank you so much for joining us on Healthyish today. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Now, how sugar and the brain, you're a neuroscientist, how does sugar actually affect our brain? Well, you know, shocking to me, um, I'm actually an alcohol addiction neuroscientist spent a long time doing that in America and back here and sugar was the control in our experiment oh wow and then yes and then my collaborator from Stanford called me up when I was moving back to Brisbane to start a lab here up in Brisbane at the Translational Research Institute and they said to me and she said to me sit down Selena you won't believe this but sugar's changing the addiction pathway in the brain in exactly the same way that alcohol and nicotine are okay that's so uh, that was my horrifying That was my first real, it was serendipitous. I wasn't looking for it. I don't have any um, bent to say yes or no to anything about sugar. uh, And I'm not saying quit all sugar or any of those things. I'm just telling you and sharing the knowledge that I think is really important for people to understand and become aware of, because I was not aware of it myself personally. And I was using sugar myself to mitigate my stress without knowing it at that point. But that was a long time ago now. Obviously, I've changed everything since. Um, but, yes, yeah, so it's, in terms of the brain, it's as you know, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel really good. And everyone's got their own little thing. It's not necessarily sugar. For some people, it's salt and fat. Um, and it just activates the same parts of your brain that alcohol, like uh, to simplify, that alcohol and nicotine do. And, it act, and we actually have mapped out all the pathways in the brain demonstrating that it's addictive and that's why it's so hard to get rid of out of your life and and I did this amazing podcast with on my thriving minds podcast with James Mewkey who was the Australian of the year in 2020 yes yep no he's now the left yes he's now the lieutenant governor of South Australia and he used his platform because he was treating people he's an ophthalmologist with diabetic retinopathy from sugar and diabetes so can does it actually rewire the brain? I mean, it's, you know, does it, it's changing, but can it actually do long-term damage? Is this what's happening? Absolutely. That's what the other work we've just published last year, we showed that too much, so this is overconsumption, meaning more than the standard World Health Organization recommendation, which is nine teaspoons a day for men, seven for women and five for children. And when you 
drink or eat more more than that. And it's not lollies. It's embedded in all our food, by the way. And what we've now shown, because we can map the brain in my lab, we've actually shown it changes the physical structure in the front part of the brain, which is the part of the brain that make, helps you make good decisions. It's called the prefrontal cortex, and it's also the area that helps regulate your emotions. So even though it might make you feel good in the short term, over time it is actually changing the neuroplasticity, meaning the brain's plasticity over time. In fact, if, it, if you have too much during adolescence, we've now shown in a paper we just published last year that it causes what you call cognitive deficits, meaning inability to remember certain things. Oh, wow. That's... Later in life. That's and concerning. there's so much evidence now. Well, it, it's actually, it, we've, there's so much data and papers I'm happy to point your listeners to around Alzheimer's, dementia, cancer, diabetes, many chronic diseases are caused by our Western diet. Um, and sugar is just one part of that Western diet. And, I, ju and I, I just record an amazing podcast with a guy called Dr. Robert Lustig from UCSF, and he's just published two books, one called Fat Chance, one called Metabolical, where he's showing that it's our processed food that's become embedded with salt and sugar, like say a chicken breast. We talk a lot about chicken breasts, and we're thinking we're making healthy choices, but it's act they're actually, to make them look good in the supermarket, they are actually got salt and sugar pumped into them to swell them for example. So there's all these simple things that you wouldn't be aware of until you now are aware of it. And that's the beauty of these platforms and podcasts and, and new ways of disseminating information to the public, which I absolutely adore. Well, from your point of view as a neuroscientist, how do we actually give up or cut back? How can we, I suppose, rewire the brain, the brain back to pre-sugar if you eat it in an overload? And, and actually you did this. How did you cut back? Yes, so the first place to start is I became I had I became really aware by turning around the labels on everything. So I used to give my kids. So I want everyone in your list audience not to feel bad because I'm probably oh no, one of the worst parents. <laughs> so I had no idea when I was giving my children low-fat strawberry yogurt that was equivalent of almost giving them a can of Coke. I had no idea. So tomato sauce, that's yes. another one that I yes. use a lot. That's full of sugar. So it's, it's actually things you may not even be aware of. So it's raising awareness first. And then, and then knowing that you can't just go full-blown off sugar. And James Mukey and I talk about a lot when he did it. He had all the withdrawal symptoms, and I did too. But I, you can just take out one thing at a time and just be patient with it and understand, and, and you'll be shocked. So the first thing that happened to me when I did this, after one week, because I used to be able to eat a lot of food. For, I'm not very tall, and I could eat a lot. And someone commented on that. And once I got started taking down the sugar, I got my appetite back. So I started to feel full again from other meals. So what other, the other thing it does is it actually suppresses these hormones it's called ghrelin and leptin, which are help telling your brain you're full. Are they, yeah, ghrelin's your hunger hormone, isn't yes. it? Yes. Part of, your, yep. part of your hunger hormone regulation system. Also the thing that uh, Robert Lustig talks about a lot and he's a pediatric endocrinologist neuroendocrinologist and he's now just retired he talks about how it spikes insulin so you get a spike in insulin as well and that's what's generating all the problems for us in our chronic disease um, and he said now if you, this is he said food our current food is actually poison okay. and so and I hate to be alarmist because I'm not like that but you can see in our in our Absolutely. children they're getting diabetes and that's not okay for us to do that without us unintendedly 
we don't want our children to be unwell. We want them to be really, really well, including us. So it starts with us first, obviously, because our kids are just copying us. Um, but yeah, the awareness is first. And then I, for me personally, and I wrote a book about this called Smashing Mindset of what I actually did, the steps I took, because really it's not just about what you're putting in as in sugar. It's actually driven by stress. It's Absolutely. actually driven by stress. And this is just one way of dealing with our modern stress. To James Mukey, who's the Lieutenant Governor of South Australia, and he's given us his time this morning to help share his amazing uh, work in starting a nonprofit and also being an eye surgeon. And thank you, James, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Selena, and lovely to see you. I have a huge number of patients who are literally on the edge of blindness. Diabetes is now the leading cause of blindness amongst working age adults in this country. And people really need to sit up and take notice of this. Why is it such a blinding problem? Well, we now have a close to 1.8 million people with diabetes in Australia. And well over half are not having their regular, all important sight saving eye checks. And so that's why it's become such a blinding problem in our society. So the, all of these patients that I'm seeing, and unfortunately, the vast majority, we're, we're stopping going blind. In fact, 98% of the blindness uh, and loss of vision due to diabetes is, is preventable. Okay, I'm the guy, I'm the doctor at the end of the line treating these end-stage complications. Uh, the driver, as I mentioned, of type 2 diabetes is, is primarily uh, dietary. And I never once thought it was my responsibility, my role to have those dietary conversations with my patients. I always just presumed that those conversations were happening uh, with the nutritionist, with the dietitian, with the GPs. But when I became Australian of the Year, I thought, okay, but this is such a critical health crisis in our country. It is the biggest health crisis that we have. If you look back at 2020, my year as Australian of the Year, we lost 15 times more lives to type 2 diabetes than to uh, the COVID pandemic. So this is the, the hidden pandemic that, that's been largely ignored. Uh, and so that was a real eye-opener to me. I think many of us, if not all of us, are aware that type 2 diabetes is largely preventable. Um, but what I wasn't aware of is that it was also potentially reversible. There are um, a, a number of clinical modalities that can actually put type 2 diabetes into remission. And so that was an extraordinary thing for me to learn that actually, firstly, Neil didn't need to go blind, um, but equally, he didn't even need to develop type 2 diabetes. And so uh, moving forward, when I received that award, I thought, well, this is the opportunity to, for me to raise awareness about this critical uh, issue that, that type 2 diabetes is, is not just preventable, it's potentially reversible. And so I spent my year, rather stressful year, <laughs> because there are so many powers trying to silence those really important messages. Yes, oh, it's fascinating. I, I remember vividly sitting in the lecture hall and listening to your wonderful presentation. And so here I am, a medical doctor uh, of close to 40 years, uh, and I was sitting in the lecture hall listening to you talk about the addictive nature of sugar. And that was the first time that I'd clicked to just how addictive sugar is. So that was a, a, a really powerful and very pivotal moment 
in, in my career and, and I very much credit you for changing my whole thinking on this and it actually formed a really powerful pillar to my advocacy over the last couple of years since receiving the award. This concept called the five A's of sugar toxicity. I don't know if you've heard me talking about that. So the very first one was, and often the hidden uh, elephant in the room is, is uh, the addictive nature of sugar. So addiction is, is my first A of sugar toxicity. It's as addictive as, as, as nicotine. Um, and we often use sugar to uh, alleviate stress or to make us feel better when we're down. So alleviation was the second A. The third A was accessibility. So sugar is cheap and sugar is absolutely everywhere in our environment these days, isn't it? You, you can't walk into the service station without being confronted by a wall of confectionery. You can't check out from most supermarkets and stores, even post offices and chemists these days, without being enticed by half-priced sugary drinks and, and, uh, and chocolates and so forth. Uh, the fourth A is addition, so an astronomical amount of sugar is added to our food and drink, something like in the order of 75%, particularly those ultra-processed uh, foods or what I prefer to call ultra-processed food-like substances, which are really dangerous to our health. And the final A is advertising. So our world is absolutely flooded with TV commercials and ads for sugary products, you know, often in the most insidious of ways. So that we just counted as calories. And what isn't talked about is that sugar replaced fat in the 60s, late 60s, because we told we were taught fat was bad. That breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Uh, this phrase was actually popularized by John Harvey Kellogg in 1906 to market his uh, newly invented breakfast cereal, Kellogg's Corn Flakes. And yet to this day, there's not a shred of evidence to say that we actually need to have breakfast and, and particularly uh, cereal for breakfast. In fact, I think many of us will do much better without having cereal for breakfast. So that's something that, that, that we know, I think it's probably the most powerful marketing slogan that's ever uh, arisen. And, and uh, I think it's it's one component of, of, because basically these breakfast cereals are just packed with sugar. Uh, even the, the healthy ones are, are very sugary and they're wrong. And when you take saturated fat out of a diet, you take away its flavoring you take away its ability to make you feel satisfied or satiated so something had to replace that and, and what replaced that were, were carbohydrates and so the recommendations in 1980s american dietary guidelines was essentially a high carb low fat eating recommendation eating pattern and that seeded uh, um, dietary guidelines across the world including our own australian dietary guidelines which to this day continue to encourage the eating of uh, cereals and grains, so a high carbohydrate. Uh, they encourage the eating of, of polyunsaturated seed oils, which I mentioned are unhealthy, and they discourage the eating of saturated fats, but particularly natural saturated fats. And yet, there are no, there's no strong evidence to say the natural saturated fat in our diet are linked to cardiovascular disease. There are now four Cochrane reviews, the highest level of evidence, exonerating natural saturated fats as a driver of cardiovascular disease, and yet it is still uh, still being pushed by, by national health. Two years ago, almost to the day, I had a scan of my abdomen uh, for a, a back problem, and I found out that I had a fatty liver. And for those of you who have seen me, I'm tall and thin. So I'm what they call toffee, so thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And I realized when I looked at my diet quite how uh, 
bad it was and it was driving in me unknowingly unwittingly this this uh, poor metabolic health and potentially i was on the pathway to pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes uh, wow. if i continued oh. on that same pathway How interesting wow i didn't that's it. see uh, this is the this is the story that you know we're everyone listening we're not alone it's all of us and um and for me it was really shocking too because one yeah it, I, I found it quite shocking and and that's why we want to do this podcast together is help other people raise awareness and know that they can do something about it it can be as simple as like right now today just have one less uh sugary or carbohydrate laden item just one just take one out it'll make a big difference because getting started is really hard when you're in the habit of medicating your stress like that's what i was doing too i don't know if that's what you were doing you had your favorite thing that you like to eat or drink when you're feeling because you're you're doing so many things juggling so many looking after people's health you know it's really stressful job doing surgery isn't it um yeah i was yeah, I was probably unwittingly using using sugary products to, yeah. to alleviate this. I was, but I know uh, there's no doubt that, that I was highly addicted to to sugar, uh, and I, I, I um. What was your go-to out of interest? Um, my absolute weakness is ice cream. Oh and, yes, <laughs> you know ice cream is is sugary, but it's also creamier. Yeah, sugar and fat, yeah, yeah. and it's uh, that combination of the two, the bliss point that you mentioned before. And I understand that there are, there are no uh, foods in our natural environment that have that combination of sh- sugar and fat. So it's a it's a it's a baddie. Uh, particularly so how did how did you start though when you got this? Was it the wake up call that that allowed you to? Because it's it's this it, this is what we're here to do is help people work out. This you know I started by taking one item out and I was also planning running at the at the same time and I started standing instead of sitting as much at work. That that's kind of how I got started. What 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 did you do, James? What can you do to help others listening that are maybe struggling a little bit as well? Absolutely, I'll definitely come to that on on your point. So so about exercise and and diet, it, it, diet is by far the biggest driver of this. In fact, our poor diet is responsible for more disease and death in the world than than um, smoking, alcohol, and inactivity combined. That Simon Capel's work out of the UK. Uh, coming to your your point, you know how did I how did I uh, basically I went cold turkey my detox from sugar, and I've done it a couple of times before. When I when I was um, again going back to those uh, those days in January of 2020, I thought if I'm going to be talking about this, I better I better walk the talk. So I went into a sugar detox. But I actually became quite unwell, and uh, it wasn't until more recently that I realised why it, it made me so unwell. But certainly, again, in January 2020, I had the same experience. I, I, I went into the sugar detox. I went cold turkey, and bang, it hits you. It's, it's amazing. There are people, even with my, my post, will come out and say, oh, no, sugar's not addictive. Uh, well, it really is. And, it, and, and until you actually detox from a sugar, you won't realize quite how addictive it is. And the withdrawal symptoms literally begin on day one. So for me, what did I do? I gave up the obviously sugary things. So I gave up the ice cream sadly there was rarely a day in my life where i hadn't had ice cream after dinner since my childhood so that was my absolute favorite but i also gave up sugary drinks uh and that not just soft drinks and flavored milks but also juices so a glass of orange juice has almost as much sugar as a glass of of cola for example so i gave up uh 
um, confectionery. I gave out biscuits and cake. Um, at work each day, I would probably make my way through a packet of cream biscuits uh, through the day. Uh, so, so those were, were some of the sugary things that I gave up. And literally day one, bang, the symptoms hit me very, very quickly. So headache, uh, this incredible sort of fatigue where you feel like you're really walking through through concrete. Uh, irritability is also very powerful and the cravings are just extraordinary. And the symptoms were there for me uh, for about three days and the cravings built and built and built. Uh, it's really quite tough actually to try and get through that period. Some people it might be a bit longer. And then after day three for me, the symptoms started to ease off. Uh, but you can actually go even harder than that. So it's a good way to start. It is, and what I found with myself was just to take a couple of Panadols judiciously to, to try and ease those sort of cravings yeah. and ease those symptoms. And it really did work. And then once you've actually detoxed, it's actually incredibly liberating. You can walk past the freezer and, and, and generally when there's ice cream in the fridge at home, and, and these days we, we rarely, really have it, uh, it would be calling out to me. But when you've detoxed, you can actually walk past the freezer or walk past the pantry and not be drawn to those sugary products. But they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to cut back on their sugar and carbs. And when everywhere in your environment, you're being bombarded by enticements from the fast food industry, from the sugary drinks industry, from the ultra-processed food industry, it is so hard for people to, to, um, to detox and to, uh, even if they are willing to try and put their type 2 diabetes into remission, to, to actually have success because at every turn you are just being bombarded by, by. I actually was of the mindset, to be honest, that if this is available, it must be healthy in a way it must be okay when a new thing comes out and they market it as healthy like I can think about without naming brands or anything uh these uh you talk about juices and you know how they have all these new ways of making them fancy and look really healthy and 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 you think you're doing the right thing by your children um rewarding them after say they played soccer or something or done something something you would reward them with one of these now, yes when i was in medical school that was called maturity onset diabetes we're now seeing it in children as young as three and northern australia leads the world for type 2 diabetes in young children that is not something to be proud of and yet once again it, it is so so potentially uh, reversible to so when you actually look at the science and I'm not talking about the science that's biased by the food industry or biased by religious ideology or biased by institutional uh, conflicts of interest. Uh, if we look at the, the, the true science, the, the, the really solid evidence-based science, um, then it speaks for itself. These substances are bad for us. Uh, they are addictive. They are alluring. And we need to, uh, re we need to have that awareness to be able to, to um, help ourselves quick summary if you want to do something is uh just turn around to whatever you buy and have a look what's on the back of it and that's where i started to another way is to visualize this in your head hold out a sandwich bag like a clear plastic bag now imagine you have a bag full of uh, just table sugar sitting next to you and now take 32 teaspoons and put it into that clear plastic bag 32 teaspoons now look at that bag. That's how much you can drink in one can of some types of soda. And, and congratulations on all you've done, Selena. And, and you, you have been a huge part of my journey and that, that, that understanding of what you communicated to me at that, that lecture, that presentation, 
has been really a very, very powerful um, uh, addition to, uh, in fact, I think it was probably one of the very key things that allowed me to, to move down this pathway about trying to raise awareness about poor diet. So thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your by Dr. Robert Lustig. Um, he's very kindly agreed to come on the podcast all the way from San Francisco. He is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He's an endocrinologist, but he's specifically interested in the regulation of energy balance. And today we're going to be talking a lot about his new books, Metabolical, and his older book, Fat Chance. Um, I'm so excited to have him. You have no idea. He's fostering a global discussion about the um, effect of on ed- metabolic health and specifically how food is actually medicine. And he's exposing some of the benefits and also some of the myths. Well, first of all, thank you, Selena. You know, uh, for your audience, you know, Selena and I have known each other for quite a few years. When leptin was discovered, I happened to be at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital the pediatric cancer hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was charged with taking care of at least 40, maybe more obese kids who had brain tumors, had survived their surgery or their radiation and had become massively obese because of the therapy. And I had to do something for them. And it was then that I basically got into obesity. Up to that point, I had been studying. And what I came to realize was it's not about obesity. It never was. Obesity is a straw man. Obesity is uh, a myth. Not that people aren't obese, they are. But the question is why? And people will say, well, they eat too much, they exercise too little. Well, that's true. But why? Why do they eat too much? Why do they exercise too little? And why has everything gone to hell in a handbasket over the last 40 years since 1980? You know, they say, well, you know, it's the food. Well, you know, the food was there before, but we didn't have this problem before. And so I've been spent, I've spent the last uh, 25 years or so, you know, piecing together the biochemistry and the neuroendocrinology of what actually happens in the brain that has led to this pandemic of not just obesity, but type two diabetes, uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. All of these diseases are the diseases of insulin resistance, therefore endocrine, All of these diseases are the diseases of mitochondria because of mitochondrial dysfunction. And all of these diseases are now the diseases of children where they weren't before. I've come to the realization that there's nobody on this planet who's obese, who's a perpetrator. They're all victims. The question is victims of whom? And that's what metabolical is about, the victims of whom? Because it's not what you eat. It's what's in the food, what they've put in the food, how they've changed the food, because all food is inherently good. It's what they did to the food that's not. And so basically I name names and I talk about 
what the food industry actually has done to our food supply in terms of contamination. Diet and food. Food is medicine, as you mentioned a lot in your work, well, how it goes into food, all parts of your body. Food can be medicine. Food can also be poison. And that's the key is, you know, there's this whole food is medicine um, uh, movement. Uh, just yesterday, the New York City uh, uh, Food Policy Institute issued a 255-page tome on food as medicine. Um, you can find it online, New York City Policy, uh, Food Policy Institute. And I read through it, you know, cursorily, because it just came out yesterday. But the bottom line is they missed the point because yes, food can be medicine. I totally agree. But in fact, what we've done to food has actually made it poison. And that's one of the questions that we can explore today is how did food become poison? Mm -hmm. I'd like that obesity was not about behavior. This proved that obesity was about biochemistry, that the biochemistry drives the behavior. And as a neuroendocrinologist, I know that, you know, estrogen drives behavior, androgen drives behavior, glucocorticoids drive behavior, you know, lots of, you know, hormones drive behavior. Well, it turns out leptin and insulin drive behavior too. So I wrote Fat Chance with the notion of explaining to obese people, it's not their fault, that this is a biochemical dysfunction that they are not perpetrators, but rather victims. What do you think is the most likely environmental cause of obesity or, or metabolic syndrome? And I'm sure they thought I was going to come up with, you know, some obesogen by rethink this. I'm a pediatrician. What diseases do children get that they never got before? And there were two type two diabetes and fatty liver disease. These were the diseases of aging, but more importantly, both of these diseases were the diseases of alcohol, but kids don't drink alcohol. So I said, kids don't drink alcohol, but they get the diseases of alcohol. What's like alcohol? So I opened up my biochemistry text from 1974 and I looked up alcohol and right on the next page was fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar. And I compared the two and I looked and I said, wait a second, they're the same. They're handled virtually identically. The big difference between the two was that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step of metabolism called glycolysis. For fructose, we do our own first step. But after that, what the mitochondria see is exactly the same. They see acetyl-CoA. And it doesn't matter if it came from alcohol. It doesn't matter if it came from uh, fructose. Ultimately, neither one's insulin regulated, and they both end up causing mitochondrial dysfunction. So I went to this meeting in um, North Carolina. And I said, I think this is the problem and here's why. And this is why everyone's getting sick and why we type two diabetes is going through the roof and why children now get this. And they applauded. And then was the bathroom break. 
and I'm standing at the podium and talking to people and like nobody's coming back. Nobody's coming back into the room, you know, for the next session. I had to use the bathroom. So I went out and I went to the bathroom and they tackled me in the friggin' bathroom. They wouldn't let me leave. They, they're screaming at me. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You got, this is, this is exactly what's happening. You have to go tell the world about this. Whoa. Toxicologists that were like crazed, crazed toxicologists. Because <laughs> they said, oh my God, fructose is a toxin. So they say, you can't take away my sugar. It's the only thing that's basically keeping me from committing suicide. Yes. <laughs> so those are the four detractors. And so there's a lot of them. So, I mean, everything's like this, isn't it? Smoking was the same in the 80s. Yes. It, this, is, this is tobacco all over again. No difference. Um, same playbook, same uh, uh, subterfuge, same lying to, you know, to the public and to Congress, same, same thing. It continues to be the standard mantra, you know, from all the, uh, the, the ivory tower people is you are what you eat. And I knew that was not true. And I knew that way back in the 90s. And I knew that actually in college, I took nutritional biochemistry. I majored in nutritional biochemistry at MIT. And I knew it then. And then I went to med school and they beat it out of me. And they told me, ah, you know, we don't, we don't worry about any of that stuff. It's, it's all calories. Um, so I knew that you, you are what you eat was wrong. And so I wrote Fat Chance to say, you are what you do with what you eat that metabolism is more important than calories. Can we just now, talk about that, um, Rob, a little bit? Because people like uh, may not understand what you mean by process versus whole food. There's so sure. many arguments about, about uh -huh. low carb, high carb, intermittent fasting, sure. um, veganism, sure. vegetarianism. You know, can absolutely. we just talk a little bit about what you mean by a processed food? Yes, absolutely. And, and th that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because people don't understand this. So the easiest way to understand processing is to take an apple. Okay, let's take an apple, All right? Class one processing is an apple. Class two processing is apple slices in a bag. Class three processing is the applesauce. Class four processing is an apple pie. Turns out classes one, two, and three are not the problem. They don't really cause much disease. It's all class four. But boy, oh boy, does class four cause disease. It's all the ultra-processed food that causes the problem. The rest of the diet, not so bad. You know, it, it, you can pretty much eat anything that, uh, that came out of the ground or, or an animal that ate what came out of the ground. It's only when the food industry actually did something to the food, either in terms of adding other ingredients, the most common of which is sugar, or stripping it of its fiber, or starting to add things like emulsifiers, you know, to keep the fat and the water together, or various other food additives, okay, that you actually alter 
the um, uh, uh, metabolic profile of that food and ultimately turn it from food into poison. And, um, this processing would be even something like, say, chicken breast in a in a oh, tray? absolutely. Sure. So let's talk about chicken breast. Happy to do so. So number one, what was the chicken raised on? What did the chicken eat? What does a chicken normally eat? A pasture-raised chicken, a free-range chicken, what does it normally eat? It's not much. I mean, seeds and what have you. Okay. But what does a factory-raised chicken get raised on? Corn. Corn turns out to be not a, um, a food staple for any species. Okay. That's not a natural diet staple for any species, except maybe, you know, louses and boll weevils and things like that. Okay. No animal eats corn routinely. Cows eat corn in concentrated animal feeding operations. Chickens eat corn in concentrated animal feeding operations. Corn is high energy. No question about that. It's energy dense. Okay, but it's also got lots of branched-chain amino acids. It's much higher in branched-chain amino acids than virtually any other food. Now, branched-chain amino acids, there are three of them, leucine, isoleucine, and valine. These are the amino acids that are 20% of muscle. And so um, athletes, you know, bodybuilders who are trying to build muscle, you know, by pumping iron, they will take scoops of protein powder and stick it in their, you know, uh, uh, Vitamix and make smoothies, you know, out of that to bulk up. And, you know, if you're building muscle, that's fine. You know, that's, you need them. They're essential amino acids. You can't make them. You got to eat them. Okay. And if you're building muscle, then okay, fine. But what if you're not building muscle? What if you're a mere mortal like me, you know? And you're eating all these excess branched chain amino acids, either because you're eating protein powder or because you're eating a chicken breast. Turns out those excess branched chain amino acids go to the liver. The liver takes the amino group off, deamidates it called. Now you've got an organic acid. The organic acid enters the Krebs cycle, the tricarboxylic acid cycle, the energy producing cycle in the mitochondria, overwhelms the mitochondria, which can't handle the load. And the excess gets thrown off and gets turned into fat in the liver. And that's one of the primary drivers of this fatty liver disease. And that fatty liver disease means the liver is now sick, doesn't work right, pancreas has to make insulin to make the liver do its job. Now you have excess insulin all over the body. And just like those kids driving energy into fat cells and gaining weight and making you sick. So if the animal was free range and not fed corn, that's much better, but that's not, but, but that's that animal, that, that chicken breast is very expensive. The cheap chicken breast that's in processed food is you know, the form. Yeah. So that's one problem of chicken breast. Yeah, that's just one Next example problem. of food, right? Next problem of chicken breast. They sell it by the pound. So what do they do? 
they soak the chicken breast in a solution of salt and water. Uh, sorry, not so salt and sugar. Sorry, salt and sugar. I'm solution salt and sugar in order to like brine it and to and it will take up extra water and so it will swell the chicken breast to make the chicken breast heavier, which then commands a higher price at the cash register. Now, that excess salt you don't need, and it can cause hypertension on its own. But in addition, we now know that from the work of Rick Johnson, who's the head of uh, uh, nephrology at University of Colorado, that that excess salt actually activates the polyol pathway, which turns glucose into fructose, and therefore you end up making more uh, liver fat as well. If you factor out the saturated fat, number one, red meat is like every other protein source, no worse. And chicken is just like red meat. So if you think you're getting away with something, you're not. Right. Yeah. So this whole red meat chicken thing is really actually a, 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 uh, an exercise in futility. And then that brings us to also veganism and vegetarianism. Um, right. There's lots well, of climate change reasons that people are choosing that, but then, but also okay. to become vegan, you've got to have a lot of carbohydrates. That's right. So and a lot of processed food, actually. That's right. Well, it does. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's what it tends to be in general, you know, because of the way it's marketed. So let me start out by saying, Selena, I am not anti-vegan. I'm not pro-vegan either, mind you, but I'm not anti-vegan. If, if people want to be vegan, let, you know, that's fine. Let them be vegan, okay? If people want to be keto, let them be keto. If people want to be carnivore, let them be carnivore. I have no bone to pick with any specific diet. All diets work as long as they're not processed food. The problem is that vegan diets often are processed food. Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are all vegan. Yes. <laughs> okay. So it's really easy to do a vegan diet wrong. Okay. Yeah. Virtually any food you buy at the store that's vegan is processed because they had to get something out of it and put something in it that ultimately made it processed yeah. to, to, to make it non-animal uh, uh, related. So um, if you really want to do vegan and you're, you know, staying away from processed food, hey, have at it. But if you think that you are healthier than the person who's practicing keto, I got a bridge to sell you. Okay. Now, there are lots of reasons to be vegan. Religion, climate change, cost, you know, and all those are perfectly fine. But metabolic health is not one of them. Metabolic health it can be just as bad if you do vegan wrong as if you basically do keto wrong. And it's easy to do keto wrong because it's really hard to stay on a ketogenic diet. And it's really easy to do vegan wrong. And so I think the ketos and the vegans actually ought to team up together because their common enemy is processed food. 
So I think the take home from metabolical so far, from what I'm hearing you say is for, for the audience is to become aware of how much processed food that they're actually consuming. Cause you may not be aware of it because you may think a chicken breast seems so like the healthiest, like it seems close to where the source is, doesn't it? That's right. I'm super excited to be here today at the Fizz Symposium in New Zealand where they're trying to introduce taxes on sugary beverages because of the problem it's causing for obesity and, and the overall health of the population. I met this amazing woman, uh, Maria Bernard, and she's out on the coal front trying to make a difference in this space. Hi, I'm Maria Bernard. Um, I met this amazing woman, Selena, at um, the Fizz Symposium here in Auckland of Samoan Ethnicity. And I went back to university to study nutrition to help our communities, our Pacific communities here in New Zealand that are suffering from obesity and diabetes. Um, here in Auckland we have a, a huge uh, hospital which is just dedicated to uh, dialysis. I think we have one of the largest units in the world. So we, go, uh, we, we deal with churches but we also go to ECEs which are early childhood education centres where the children are very small but we, we actually teach the carers of these children um, nutrition and um, nutrition information. So we do a sugar um, activity where we have lots of different um, sweet drinks, um, common drinks that people know and we teach the carers how to learn how many tablespoons of sh uh, teaspoons of sugar are in a drink. Um, and there's a particular one which is very common and very um, highly drunk in the Pacific community out South Auckland which is called STARS. Um, so we had this particular one and we worked out that there were 32 teaspoons of sugar in this drink and one particular carer, her name is actually Patricia, said, oh that's my daughter's favourite drink and um, the next time we met up she said, um, I was so shocked that how many, how many teaspoons of sugar was in this drink, we know they're sweet but we didn't know how much was in this drink. But since you've taught me this information, um, my daughter's not drinking that drink anymore. She was only 11 years old and she was having two or three per day. That's nearly 100 teaspoons a day. Um, um, can we just say what the um, recommended li limits the, are for oh, kids, the women? Yeah, so the recommended um, teaspoons for a child is only three. And this little girl, 11, was having nearly a hundred. Women is six teaspoons a day and men are nine teaspoons a day. And most cans of soda have? Um, a 250ml very not so sweet would be, have um, eight teaspoons of sugar. So already you've blown away your sugar um, recommendation for the day in one little drink. Yeah. yeah. And then back to this amazing story. So, yeah, so, so, you, so you go away and you come back. And we come back and then we, we um, this, this um, carer at the um, EC tells us that she, she actually sat down, went home and, and told her daughter and taught her daughter how to read the food label. So you, you have to look at the per serve, look at the sugars, and you times that by the serving, and then you divide by five because there are uh, five grams of sugar in every teaspoon. Yeah. So we just want to reiterate, if you're out there and you're wondering how much sugar you're 
um, having every day. I think this is the key um, that we're trying to get across in this particular podcast is most of us, including myself, had no concept of how much sugar I was eating. So what um, Maria was trying to say is you go to the back on the nutrition panel, you yeah. look at the serving size. Yes, yeah. You do, yes, there's two main columns there. There's what per 100 grams and then the other column is per serve. And so you look at the per serve, you find how much sugar is in the um, container, then you times that by the per serve. If it's a small can, it will just be one. It will be just one yeah. serve. And so you just times it by one, it will just but be... But that's rare these days. Yeah, and that's true. If it's a big, large bottle, it may be three to five servings. And then, and then you divide by five, and then you'll have the amount of teaspoons that is in that um, particular drink. And the other thing that you said made a big difference was you actually bringing in sugar. Yes, so in this little activity we also bring in buckets of sugar, little little buckets, with a teaspoon in it, and we have a little bag. So once they work out how much is in how much sugar is in each drink, how many teaspoons, then they have to actually physically spoon in teaspoon by teaspoon into the plastic bag and then they can visually see how much sugar is actually in that drink. And that's and that's shocking for a lot of them. It's- yeah. It is, isn't it? Like when yeah. you look at 32 teaspoons of sugar, yes. and that's just one can. Yes. And now Maria's talking about children under the age of 11. Yes. Having this much sugar and wondering why the kids are also crazy active. Yeah, and not only that, but what it does to their teeth. Their oh, teeth. Yes. Their teeth will be absolutely, well, I, I would say just full of tooth decay. Um, And that was the other thing we were learning here, wasn't it, Maria, that the dentists here were saying that they're anaesthetizing five-year-olds and taking out all their teeth. All their teeth, yeah. And this is not an uncommon thing. It's it's, it's happening a lot. And I think people, they know that when they see a sugary drink, they know it's going to be sweet, but they just don't know how much is actually in there. And so we're teaching them to work it out for themselves. And And you're not telling them not to do it. Yes, so what we do is we just... we, we. offer the information to them, we give it to them, and then we let them do whatever they will with that information. We, we don't like to say, well, you can't drink this, you can't drink that, because we know that doesn't work. People are so without this knowledge. People just don't know anything. They've come from, from nothing. So that's why the, the shock is quite significant. Yeah. And yeah. I remember when we had this conversation earlier, just raising awareness actually can make a big impact. Right? Yes, yeah. Because we think that that doesn't do anything, but often just knowing something can yes, be very helpful. Yeah. And what we do, what we see a lot is that these little steps, you know, you take a little step, a little change, which in this case, this woman whose little girls uh, used to drink this drink. So in the family, they've also started making other changes, not just um, stopping the sugary drinks, but they, they're actually having more vegetables. And so they've, they've just made all these little steps, and it's been like a little kind of domino effect in a way. Yeah, yeah it's just that first step, right? Yes. We're always talking about what does it take to get the first step yeah. going. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what other things have you been working on that you find is having some impact yeah I think the other things that we do is we also um, do we, we work with um, showing how processed food how, how much processed food has very little nutrition and um, the other thing about sugar is that it has um, no fiber and no nutrients 
So not only are you having the sweet, you know, drinking the sweet drink, but afterwards you're not gonna, you're actually gonna be hungry. You you won't have anything to fill fill your tummy up. So you'll have all those calories, and then you're going to want something to eat as well. Yeah, yeah. I found the same thing. I actually yeah. never felt full from food that's after right. I ate, when yes. I was eating a lot yeah. of sugar at one point. Yeah, and that's why it was interesting in your talk how you said fructose um, actually doesn't make doesn't connect with those hormones that make you feel full it actually stops them yes so it inhibits them yes. as you said yeah yeah, yeah they release yeah. and it's yeah. little things like that that are quite shocking yeah that you have no idea that yeah. you're doing and that's like someone that's been working in the space too i think that's amazing yeah <laughs> so in a way it's a double whammy with uh, the sugar because it it not, doesn't only not fill you up it has no nutrients and it blocks this hormone. And I was wondering, all that we know is always is linked to obesity, and obesity has lots of other illnesses associated with obesity, and cardiovascular disease, the heart, is one of the big um, other illnesses that you get yeah, from obesity. so that's where the dialysis... You change their environment, like um, I was saying to Selena that you know a lot of Pacific... Samoans and Tongans and they came to New Zealand to have a better life but as soon as they are disconnected from the land they have another they have to change their diet they come here they can't actually access the food that they were eating in yeah back, can back you describe home. you would describe a little bit yeah. about that because that was really important yeah so we were talking about obesity mm. and you know why is it happening this obesity and and I, I from what I've seen when I go back to Samoa is that they have a much more physical life they, if they want a fish, they go and fish it. If they want some food, they will climb a, climb a tree or go to the plantation and dig it up. And then they have to carry it home, you know, maybe a couple of miles. And then they'll have to cook it. And they, you know, maybe cook it in the ground. So then they have to dig a hole, get some firewood, start the... So everything is a lot more physical. Whereas here, well, you get a job and then you'll maybe go to, a, you know, go to fast food takeaways. So... The more they got disconnected from the land, I think the more the health problems started yeah. to occur. And yeah. we're talking about bananas, so because yeah. um, they love bananas. Yes, they I do. love bananas. Yeah, and I we do. just wanted to put it out there to let you know that a banana has tryptophan, which makes serotonin, which makes you feel good, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's one thing we're talking it about. Helps depression. Yeah. One yeah. thing we can help maybe replace some of the sugar with it, but back to bananas <laughs> yeah and I think more and more there are more and more um, research showing that um, how closely nutrition is related something like that you tell yourself that that sends a positive message into the world for people I to don't know think. if my someone is good enough but I'll just say um, can you tell us what it is? So I just said, um, what I want for you is to have um, health and well-being, and the best thing is to not try, try to not to drink sweet drinks drink water, water is the best. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. There were so many takeaways there.
So many pieces of inspiration, wonderful people trying to help others get um, some of this information that you may not have heard. Look forward to getting your feedback on this episode. And if you'd like to subscribe and let us know what you think about the podcast, that would be very helpful for us. We're really grateful to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to the Thriving Minds podcast. Mm-hmm.